morning, everyone. My name is Campbell Markham, pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian, and it's great to be joined together in this way this morning, and we are looking today at God's Word in Revelation 13. And so I hope you have a Bible in front of you, and we'll open to Revelation chapter 13. We'll be looking at the first four verses in particular today. I was driving with an old friend in downtown Hobart when we passed St. David's Cathedral. And I said to my old friend, what a beautiful church. And he took the bait. And he said, that's not a church. That's just the building. It's the people who make a church. And he's exactly right in the Bible. The word translated church literally means assembly. A church is a body of Christians who assemble to sing, to pray, to read, and to love one another. A non-assembling church is an oxymoron, it's a, it's a contradiction in terms. Social bonding, not social distancing, is what makes a church. From today, however, thousands of churches across the world will no longer be assembling physically. Under the new reign of COVID-19, we'll all assemble online as we are today. And there's a big part of me that grieves for this. I'm going to miss people's hugs and smiles. I'm going to miss eye contact. I'm going to miss hearing the children play after church. I'm going to miss Christine checking whether I've cleaned my shoes for Sunday morning. Yet, with all the things that we miss out on, this does mean that we are throwing the doors of our church open to a much wider group of people. In 1987, Ronald Reagan stood in Berlin at the Brandenburg Gate, and he looked at the Berlin Wall and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And the Lord has torn down our walls for many more people to hear his word. But the challenges of meeting remotely are profound, aren't they? God has made us both souls and bodies. We are spiritual and physical beings. Eye contact, smell, warmth, body language is all integral to our relating. Church is about living, breathing humanity. Living like this, it's going to be easy for people to quietly drift off and drift away. Who will notice? You might think. And if our faith is weak, then our souls are simply not going to survive the effects of this virus. And the next 6 or 12 or 24 months of physical separation, we don't know how long it's going to be. There has never been a more important time for us to understand spiritual warfare. The invisible war that rages around us all the time. This war between Jesus and his angels and the devil and his, his angels, his demons. It is a war for the souls of the world. It's a, it's a war for your soul. The war against COVID-19 is trivial by comparison. The worst thing that can happen with the virus is that our body might die. But this spiritual battle that is raging all around us is a battle for our eternal souls. We learn about this war in the book of Revelation. 
in what we call the apocalypse. And the word apocalypse means to unveil, to pull aside the curtains. And the book of Revelation pulls aside the curtains so that we can see this invisible war that is raging around us 24-7. At Cornerstone, we've been looking at the book of Revelation for some months, and we are up to chapter 13, and I thought today maybe we should start a new series and we're going online, but I thought, no, let's keep going, and certainly the things we're going to see in the book of Revelation are more, not less pertinent, with all the things happening around us at the moment. So let's look at Revelation 13, and I'll pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you will be our teacher today. Father, thank you for giving us this word. Lord Jesus, thank you that it testifies to you. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and soften our hearts to receive what your word is saying to us. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Look there at Revelation 13. It opens with a terrifying scene, doesn't it? The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. These are symbols. What do these symbols represent? Well, the curtain parts to show us two alarming spiritual enemies. We see the dragon, and the dragon symbolizes Satan. And he first appears in the Bible as a different kind of reptile, as a snake. And here in the book of Revelation, he is standing beside the sea. And in the Bible, the sea often represents all that is tumultuous and chaotic and dangerous. Emerging from this satanic sea is a grotesque seven-headed beast. It has ten horns, symbolizing its great power. It has ten crowns, symbolizing its tremendous ruling authority, a cruel and unjust rule. And its seven heads are tattooed, if you like, with blasphemous names, names which dishonor God and insult God. The beast is what we call a chimera. It's a, a composite of different animals, a leopard with the paws of a bear and the jaws of a lion. Now in Daniel 7, we see these animals portrayed and they represent various world empires. The lion represents Babylon, the bear represents Medo-Persia, the leopard represents Macedonia. That means that this beast that we see in Revelation 13 manifests its power through various godless world empires, governments, rulers, cultures, movements, philosophies and trends. Now we must all look this grotesque and fearsome beast in the eye. This is our enemy. This is the being 
that would like to destroy our eternal soul. It's important that we look carefully at our enemy. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound. But the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? This tells us that one of the beast's heads literally, emphatically, was slaughtered unto death. That's what the words in the original language mean. One of its heads was slaughtered unto death. That means that this beast has been mortally wounded. Its lifeblood is draining away. It's only a matter of time before it expires. But look again at the beast. Its wound appears to be healed. The mortal wound is temporarily staunched. Final death is suspended. What is this teaching us? Jesus' death and resurrection defeated the devil, mortally wounded him. Paul tells us that in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 15, having disarmed the devil and his demons, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus has defeated the devil. But this mortal wound that he received from Calvary was temporarily healed. That means that God has allowed the devil and evil a little more time to fight on and to live on. I remember when I was about eight years old, I was at my pop's farm in the north of Perth. And I was there with my parents and my aunts and uncles and cousins were all there and it was a beautiful day and someone discovered a dugite snake and dugites are poisonous snakes in western australia about 30 meters from the farmhouse and my uncles went down to attack the snake and they took shovels and rakes and even a rifle and our aunties huddled with us cousins on the veranda protecting us from the snake. And one of my uncles took his rake and he gave the snake an almighty blow on its back. And then my other uncle started hitting it on the head with a shovel. And one even shot it. It kept moving, it kept writhing around, they kept hitting it until it could move no longer. Now thinking back to that, which was all quite exciting for us as kids, thinking back to that, I know that that first blow with the rake gave that snake a mortal wound. It's never going to recover from that. But it still had enough life in it to writhe around and to be of some danger. And it's exactly the same with the devil. He's received his mortal wound. The rake has come down on his back. It's only a matter of time before he finally stops moving. But he's still active. Jesus has died, he's defeated the devil. He said on the cross, it is finished. And he rose from the grave to guarantee us new life. But for a little time, that mortal wound has been temporarily healed. 
And people see this and they're filled with wonder. And they look and they, they think the devil, he still rules, doesn't he? That's what it looks like. Evil still rules. It looks like Jesus has failed. And this supposed failure plays to our wicked desires. If Jesus was not victorious, then why should I live for him? I can't remember how many times someone has asked me, if God's there, why is there still evil in the world? And maybe you've been asked that question more than once. But so often I find that people ask that question and they don't really want an answer. They don't want an answer. They want a justification for not bowing to God. When we reject and refuse to worship Christ for whatever reason, the book of Revelation, this passage right in front of us, says that we are in fact worshipping the beast. Look there at verse 4, people worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against him? It looks like the cross failed. It still has some life in it. Revelation says that if you are not worshipping Jesus, you're really worshipping the beast. You see, in a time of war, no one can remain neutral. If you are not for your country, then you are for your enemy. To choose to do nothing in a time of war is to serve and to aid the enemy. In this spiritual war for our souls, there is no Switzerland, there's no neutral place. We all live for, bow for, and serve something or someone greater than ourselves. And the Bible says that if we're not bowing to Christ, then our worship is going to the devil. And you might be thinking right now, I'm not serving the devil. I'm not a Christian, but I'm not serving the devil. How, how stupid. All I do is look after myself. Well, Switzerland said the same thing in World War II. They said, we're, we're neutral, we're not serving anyone. Historical scholars now talk about the neutrality myth. By not standing against Nazi aggression, Switzerland persisted. And the devil is very happy for us to slumber under the neutrality myth. But here in this passage, Jesus lovingly awakes us from our sleep. He opens our eyes and he says, he who is not with me is against me. If you're not worshipping Christ, then you're worshipping the beast, the devil. Forget dark mofo, red crosses, flames, and bull sacrifices. Just picture people who live for things apart from Jesus Christ. Let me finish with just one example. Living for success. Success as in wealth, admiration, and influence as ends in themselves. Things that count for exactly nothing when we are dead, but things that make us behave now selfishly, arrogantly, bestially. Will I choose Jesus, who died and rose again, but whom I cannot see, and who demands that I give up my life in order to find it in him, or 
before I choose to bow down to success as an end in itself, which lives on in the world even after Jesus' death and resurrection, which the world prizes, which offers a pleasant rather than a hard life. The Bible's clear to choose success or to live for anything other than Jesus Christ is to give our lives, our devotion, our worship, our energy to the beast. And that's a very tragedy. The devil's days are numbered. The lake of fire is ready for him, says the book of Revelation. What an awful thing to live for him, to be the dragon's unwitting slave, and then to share his fate for all eternity. He wants that for you because he hates you. He's fighting for your soul right now. The curtain has been opened and we are seeing what's going on. The Bible says if we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and he rose to give us life, then we're freed from the dragon's slavery. Freed from sin. Freed from that place of fire. Jesus becomes our master and he loves us and he's a good and kind master and we can look forward to eternal life in heaven. I hope that today has been thought-provoking and challenging. If you want to know more about Revelation 13, then there should be a link on the YouTube page there and if you click on that you can see an explanation of the whole chapter. And next week, I intend to focus on the end of that chapter and to look carefully at the mark of the beast and what the mark of the beast is and why we should think very carefully about its teaching. We're now going to have Samuel Fletcher going to come up and, and play for us and we're going to respond to God's word in praise.